Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today, my guest is Ruth Hoyt, a Texas master naturalist and a certified interpretive guide who loves photography. She's been in the business of photography for over 30 years, and about 20 years ago, she started Photobound Tours, an LLC she uses to teach and connect people of all ages and skill levels to nature and wildlife photography. The majority of the tours she leads are in South Texas, but she also visits some international destinations such as Kenya and Costa Rica. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here with you. When we first met, you were busy leading daily photo tours for the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. And now you've got a trip to Costa Rica coming up. Can you tell us about your last trip there? Okay, I've gone in the springtime and in the wintertime. My last trip was this past spring where we focused on the amazing resplendent quetzals. Mm. People wanted to get pictures of them in flight. And it's a beautiful bird with a super long tail. And it's on everybody's wish list when they go to Costa Rica generally. Is that a bird that you have to hike far into a particular area to find? Well, they're mostly on private property. So I work with my guides to find the places that they are. A couple of them have family members who have property with quetzals on them. Hmm. So when I go to that place in particular, we park the cars at the bottom of the hill and have to hike up a big hill. (laughs) So they're not always accessible. Some of them you hike down a hill to get to, just depending on the location of the bird. Sure. While you're out there looking for this bird, do you see any other birds along the way? Oh my gosh, yes. When we (laughs) go to Costa Rica, it's, it's always... Uh, when are we going to stop because we need to get those birds. And when we're traveling from the lowlands to the highlands, you're going through different uh, elevations where you get different birds. And so we make sure that we stop in places along the way. Some restaurants actually have um, branches and perches, things things for the birds to land on, yeah. and they put out food to attract them. So we're always making stops along the way to get those birds. To see what's there. Sure. Here in the U.S., we see a lot of morning doves and maybe chipping sparrows or house sparrows, house finches. But what are some of the birds that are really common in Costa Rica that you might see everywhere? There's all kinds of tanagers. If you Mm -hmm. like tanagers, they come in all different colors. Mm. Uh, So that's a a favorite. Toucans, toucanets. Mm. uh, There's just so many. Hummingbirds is a big specialty in Costa Rica. There are many different kinds of hummingbirds, and just depending on what elevation you're visiting is going to determine what you see. What you will see. Hmm. How did you get into this role as a guide? That's sort of a convoluted story, but I came down for a photo contest, ended up running the contest, and that put me in contact with other photographers and ranchers, magazines that wanted to write stories about us and our photo contests. And eventually I stopped running the contest and went freelance. And when I went freelance, I continued doing my classes, which was something that I've done for more than 30 years. And it just opened up a new door 
for me to be exposed to getting people on ranches along with me. I had a lot of ranch connections and yeah, there's always the public places, the public parks. We've got the world birding centers here. Uh, A lot of places for people to find birds and do photography. But I found that people really enjoyed the ranches because they're private and you don't have people coming up around and messing up your shots. Sure. And so I started connecting people with the ranches. And Hmm. that's where it sort of jumped off. And then how did that progress to these international destinations? Well, I like to travel myself. And so... I would go on trips with other trip leaders. A couple of them were trips where they wanted me to work with them, and so they would comp me the trip. All I had to do was pay to get there and pay tips and things like that. So I got to do a couple of trips like that, and then that led into me taking other people on trips. Okay. What was? Do you remember your first trip, Um, first international trip? That was a long time ago. I went to South Africa with two friends. Okay. And we went unguided. One of the people on that trip had been many times himself. Yeah. And so he served as our local and uh, nice. friend guide. And so that was back in 2001. Okay. And um, South Africa was amazing. We spent three weeks there, and it was never enough. I love to travel <laughs> and, and find new things to photograph. Sure. And... I said, we've got to come back. And so we went back two years later, the same three of us, but we brought people with us. So that was sort of my first guiding experience away from home, you know, out out of the States. Sure. When you went on that first trip being to South Africa, that was your first time in South Africa? Yes. Do you remember any birds that stick out in your mind right now when you first saw them on that trip? I think all of the birds were really fascinating. One of the first birds that I wanted to see and photograph was the lilac-breasted roller. It was Hmm. something I had seen pictures of many times, but never really knew anything about it. And so that was on my want list. That was an amazing experience, seeing all those colors, those jewel-tone colors Hmm. flying through the air. Just beautiful. When you say, I'm not familiar with the bird roller what size bird or what kind of bird is this how would you associate it to here in the u.s um it doesn't have as long of a tail as a scissor-tailed flycatcher okay it's it's a little bit stouter bird but it has the name roller because as it's flying it's making sideways figure eights basically and so it's it has the appearance of rolling when it's flying and catching things and is, it is some sort of flycatcher. It'll go after insects. Yeah, it's it, yeah, and it's very colorful. It's got a lilac-colored breast, but then it's got turquoise on the wings and body. It's just a beautiful bird. It sounds like it. When did you first take an interest in birding? Well, you know, it's really funny. I came down to South Texas for a wildlife photo contest. And I hadn't really photographed birds except incidental birds that got into my pictures. So I really didn't know a whole lot about birds 20-some-odd years ago. But I was in this photo contest, and it had 50 categories of subject material to, to uh, photograph. Sure. It's a wildlife photo contest. 17 of the categories were birds. <laughs> and so I really had to learn, sorry for the pun, but I had to learn on the fly. Yeah. And uh, so... A lot of them I I didn't know anything about, so I learned as I was going. I bought lots of field guides, visited some parks the year before the contest. So I was trying to prepare ahead of time and learn a little bit about what I was doing. 
And I think what helped me most in getting to know birds was just coming down and going on walks in some of the parks. They would have bird walks and they'd sell field guides. And of course, I bought lots of field guides. I think I spent now 23 years ago, $300 was a lot more than it is now for a field guide. But I spent lots of money on field guides and just getting acquainted with what was here. And I know people say everything is bigger in Texas. It's true. (laughs) Everything is bigger. Because in the field guide, it would say maybe, let's say we're talking about a centipede. Yeah. And it would say six to eight inches maximum. And I would find them 10 to 12 inches. And I was just like, this is not how big you're supposed to be. (laughs) I really enjoyed coming down and learning about birds as I was going. It became a passion, you know, to learn as I went. When you think of those 17 categories, even though it's been a while, do you remember one of the 17 that was a particular struggle? Well, they were all a struggle for me because I really didn't know that much about birds. So I was learning as I was going and I would see one do something. I'd miss the shot because I didn't know what to expect. And so since then, I've learned that when I'm teaching people to try and teach them to watch for behavior so they can Mm. anticipate what's happening. I was always missing shots because I didn't know. And um, one of my pictures, one, it was a pair of common ground doves. They're very shy and they're sort of hang, they hang back. They, they do it everything in pairs. Sometimes you'll see them in a flock, yeah. but most of the time, if they're paired with another one, they do everything together. Mm. And the picture that I got of the, the two uh, common ground doves that won a placement in the contest, I was watching them and they were coming up to the water hole. The water was, in an elevated area and they were down lower. And so they were trying to approach the water, but being very inconspicuous. And when they finally got to that point where their whole bodies were showing at the edge of the shore, I was able to get their picture. So that was a struggle. But on the other hand, it was rewarding because I I could see that they were shy. Yeah. That was such a beautiful shot in the end. Yeah, it worked out. It did. (laughs) When you think of your photography and the different times you photograph birds what is a particularly memorable encounter you've had with a bird oh i've had so many um i'm thinking about an oriole that Mm -hmm. that happened when you look at my um my publicity photo it's me with an oriole on my hand i'm holding an orange in my hand and the bird is sitting on my finger I never expected that. Well, actually, I sort of was hoping for that because I had I had oranges in a bucket. Yeah. And I had that just sitting outside the photo blind where we were going to be photographing. And this bird kept coming to my bucket because yeah. it could see the oranges in it. And I said, no, I don't want you on the bucket. I want you on my perch. So I took the bucket and I brought it down the steps into the photo blind with me. And the bird followed me (laughs) down the steps and landed on the bucket. And I took a picture of it with my cell phone. And I thought, this bird is not afraid. It's a wild bird. It's not tame at all. But it wants that orange so badly that it's going to follow. And I, I, so I cut an orange in half and I gave it to the, one of the, people in the photo blind it was the lady uh, 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 the wife of a photographer and she wasn't photographing she didn't have a camera and i told her if you hold this orange in your hand and you sit very still i think he might come and land on your hand and she said do you really think so and i said (laughs) well i hope so it seems to be following these oranges sure and sure enough 
the bird came in the blind and landed on her hand. Wow. And I took pictures of her with that bird on her hand. Yeah. And I said, okay, I've got to get to work. Your husband is ready to take pictures. Let me go set up the perch for the or for the birds to come. Yeah. I'm going to take this orange out there with me. If that bird lands anywhere on me, would you please take my picture? And she said, yes. And she actually did a video of it. Her <laughs> husband had a longer lens, and he took the picture of me with the orange in my hand with the bird on the orange. Wow. And that's my publicity picture. I've used it for quite a while now. I should be getting a different one. But that was a really neat interaction yeah. because this bird followed me. He wanted the orange so badly. We were out in the desert. There are no orange trees out there, but Orioles love oranges. And yeah. he just wanted it so badly that he would come up and come land on, on me. Yeah. How neat. When you think back further, uh, before you got into photographing birds or some of these things, what is your earliest memory of a bird? I have a couple of them. The first one is probably when I was just maybe six or seven years old. And um, my parents weren't outdoors people. I mean, they liked outside, but they weren't nature people. But my mom would say, oh, look, there's robin redbreast. It's on the lawn. It means spring is coming. And that was, that was an early memory for me connecting with birds. And it, it didn't mean much to me then because I wasn't really a bird watcher. But I knew the robin redbreast every time I saw it, every year after that. Yeah. And um, I did end up going to Girl Scout camp. I was a Girl Scout, and I started going to Girl Scout camp. And I remember hearing the whippoorwill for the first time. Mm. And I didn't know what it was, and that was something that they taught us. And there were camp, there were campfire songs and Girl Scout songs. And yeah. I learned about the whippoorwill through that. So the robin redbreast and the whippoorwill, those are the two. <laughs> So two of them attached to a a common phrase or song, you were able to learn about these two birds. Yes, right. Yep. (laughs) Now let's move on to our bird segment, where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Ruth will tell us about a bird that is quite popular around these parts, the green jay. When I saw one for the first time, it was in flight, and I saw a splotch of green with a pair of yellow tail stripes. Then when it landed, I was surprised by its vibrant blue face. It seems like this would be a hard bird to mistake for another. Can you tell us a little bit about the appearance? Yeah, they're pretty unique. The first time I saw a green jay and took a picture, it was just sitting on a perch. So it's just a bird on a stick kind of photo, but it was at evening light, so the the lighting on it was just phenomenal. I just fell in love with green jays from the first time I photographed one. It was on a century plant, and and, uh, the sunset light was coming down, so it was very soft light on a beautifully... Uh, colored bird with a yes. soft orange background because everything was going, you know, super low light. Yeah. But you're right about that blue face and the they have a black black head and blue markings on their face, and then the yellow underside of the tail and the the turquoise in the tail on the top side, mm. and they're just very colorful. There's nothing else like a green jay. Yeah, they almost seem out of place. <laughs> it's a tropical bird in a semi-tropical location. Area. Yeah. So we don't have blue jays down here. I I only have a couple of blue jay pictures, hmm. and I just recently got them because I'm never photographing in blue jay territory. territory. <laughs> yeah. Where do you find green jays? I've seen them in a few different locations, but where are they typically found? Well, that's, it's a tropical bird, and we're in the northernmost part of its range. Okay. So you can't go into northern Texas and find green jays. Hmm. You know, they, they're, they're expanding their range, and you might find some up into the, the lower parts of central Texas, but it's mostly a south Texas species. 
You don't find them anywhere else. Pretty much South Texas and further south. Yes, exactly. What kinds of environments do you find them in? Like, are they found in bushes, trees? Where might you see them? Well, you know, they're more... They've they've expanded so that you can find them in towns. Okay. I think of I think of them as a ranch bird. You know, you see them in ranch country in the brush. Uh, that's where they nest. But they're in cities, and um, I I don't know where exactly they go in the cities. But in the ranches, they're pretty secluded. Is where they like to go for nesting. Yeah. There's not very much study uh, material on them. Uh, I know that. There's generally a flock of them. They hang out together, okay. and there's there's usually a dominant pair, and that's the nesting pair, and the rest of them are sort of contributors to the success of those birds uh, nesting. Oh, so from the little we do know about nesting, are they nesting in trees, on the ground, in bushes? Um, they're actually up in the trees. They don't, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard of any being on the ground. Yeah. Um, I was at an event one night at somebody's house that they had green jays in their brush. Yeah. And I had never seen a sleeping green jay. They're always very alert and perky and very active. Yeah. And the host of this um, event said, Ruth, have you ever seen a sleeping green jay? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. I would love to, though. And he yeah. took me back out and down the trail. They had some uh, brush in their back. Yeah. And uh, he took me down the trail, and he said, I'm not going to shine the light directly on him, but I'm going to shine it a little bit below him so you can see the light Around surrounding it. him, so you see him. And it looked like a green, fuzzy tennis ball. <laughs> it was all fluffed up, and you couldn't see its head. It was all tucked, tucked in. in. Yeah. How neat. Never seen anything like that. Yeah. Quite a sight. Where do they typically eat when they're out about in the brush or in the trees? What are okay. they looking for? Yeah, they forage. They are opportunists, mm-hmm. and they will eat insects. They will, they're will. they really fast at catching flies. If they see a fly or a bee flying by, they'll catch it. Oh, wow. They're very fast. What I have found uh, is that we put out food that we know that they like. Yeah. And I'm going to say peanuts don't grow on the ranches where I go, <laughs> but they love peanuts. Yeah. They uh, they will do just about anything for a peanut. And down here in deep South Texas, we don't have oak trees naturally. Okay. So how do they know to eat an acorn? Uh-huh. I don't know. But I have friends who have oak trees, and they collect acorns for me. I get them all cleaned up, and I freeze them in Ziploc baggies because yeah. they most of them have worms in them. Okay. And they I don't know if it's the worms they want or if the actual acorn, but hmm. they love acorns. If I As put well. out acorns... They go for it. <laughs> and we don't have oak trees here. Yeah, yeah. So they are adapting their diet to what's available? The, and... Yes, they are definitely opportunists. And I think once they learn something, they teach the others. Mm-hmm. You were with me today, and uh, you saw how one bird came in, spotted the peanuts that we had hidden in the perches, and he began what sounded like scolding. But yeah. what he was doing was announcing, hey, there's food here. And within a minute, we had how many? I know, four, six. Yeah. yeah, yeah. we had, I think, four on one side on one tree, and we had three on the other. So, yeah, they come in groups. Yeah, it was fascinating how that one bird called for what seemed like a solid 30 to 60 seconds. <laughs> and it could have gone for the food itself, but it continued to call, waiting for others to arrive. Right. That's not always typical. Mm-hmm. That, that, one, that one bird is a little bit unusual, but they do. Yeah. They announce when they find food, and everybody comes. So they can share with their group. Yep. When you talk about their communication, they can be pretty loud. And we actually have a clip you can listen to here. 
What's one of the differences between the male and the female? Well, I think the females can also do that, but I think they choose not to. I've been studying them for quite a long time, and what I what I have noticed is that the, the males tend to be really vocal, like what you heard in that clip, and the females a little bit more subtle, a little bit more like she's talking to herself. She's mm. not, uh, not really announcing and broadcasting. To everyone. And the only reason I even know that one might be a male and, and the other be a female is that I've seen them breeding and the females were always the ones that had that softer voice when they were interacting uh. and he was the more bold one. Okay. So I'm pretty sure that I can tell when I'm hearing a male and a female. female. They look alike, so you really can't tell just by looking at the two birds which one is which. You just have to listen. You you do have to listen. For this last portion of the episode, one of the things you're really passionate about is connecting others with nature and photography. Can you tell us some of what you're doing now? Oh, okay. Well, I love teaching. It's been a part of my life as far back as I can remember. Because from when I was a teenager, I was teaching things. As far as photography goes, one of my favorite groups of people to work with are youngsters. Hmm. And people ask me, how can you stand working with teenagers? They're teenagers. They're not (laughs) so fun. But I, I find them fun because sometimes you can help change the trajectory of a kid's life just by connecting them with nature and photography. You know, they come in with an attitude. I do youth photo workshops in the summertime. That's one of my passions. And I'll be working with teens. I have different age groups that I work with, and I'll get some teenagers. And they come in, and they're sort of haughty and, you know, looking down like this is, my parents dropped me off. I'm just going to be here for a while, (laughs) and I don't have to learn anything or do anything. And I'll start with a slideshow, and then we give them cameras. If they don't have their own camera, we provide cameras for them. And you get them connecting. And Mm. once they get connected, it's like turning on the light switch. It comes on, and they get engaged, and they forget about acting like a teenager. So (laughs) teenagers are fun to work with, and and younger. I like working with young kids, too. Do you have any particular memories of a certain teenager you worked with where they had that moment and connected with a particular bird? Oh, yeah. That happens not every summer, but many times. Yeah. So on on a different group that I was working with, it was teenagers. It was, uh, I think, 15 to Mm 18-year-olds. They were high schoolers, and they were doing a camp out, and I was going to talk about night photography. Yeah. And... These kids were sitting on the picnic table, and I brought my laptop. We didn't have a a projector because we were, you know, camping. Outdoors. But I had, right. And so I had my my laptop at the end of the picnic table, and I was showing the slideshow. And they were sort of like, you know, not really paying too close attention. But what I had was a camera that they could put their card into. Each of them had an SD card, Hmm. and I had a camera that would work with that. So we took a night hike and we went to the to the lake. Yeah. And it was a perfectly clear night and you could see the stars and the stars were actually reflecting in the water. Wow. And the first time they would look through the camera, they couldn't believe what they were seeing hmm. and they were taking pictures on my camera with their card. Uh, card. Yeah. So they went home with pictures that they probably would have never gotten otherwise. Any other way. Yeah. And the attitudes changed. Once yeah. they, they, they had to actually form a line because they, everybody wanted to turn to at try. it. To try. Yeah. It was fun. How neat. And it's not only the youth that you work with, you work with people of all ages. Oh, I do. I work with kids from eight to 
Well, I was going to say 80, but it can be 90. <laughs> I do work with some uh, veterans. I mm-hmm. do some veteran projects with uh, different groups. And so I do, sometimes it's a Zoom class yeah. uh, for helping people. But a couple of years ago, I did a project with the veterans, and it was getting veterans out to take pictures. So connecting with older people with nature and mm. working their camera and just enjoying what they had around them. When I think of photography and connecting with nature, I was thinking of how, how is this helping them to connect? And I guess when you're taking that picture, you're focusing on a subject or focusing on a scene, and it's forcing them to pay closer attention to their environment or what's around them. Sure. And if, if it's in the morning or the, the late afternoon or evening, you've got the aid of the, the light, you know, yeah. the sun coming up or the sun going down, because everything looks different from one minute to the next. Sure. And in the slideshow that I show them before we go out, I talk about that kind of thing. So when I think about different ways to take a picture, I ask them to challenge themselves by taking photographs. Don't just take one and leave, but then find the picture that you think you like, but then either go higher or lower, or maybe even just turning the camera into the vertical format so Mm. you've changed the composition. And I find that once they get into that, then they stay longer in one spot. Mm. They don't just take one, snap it, and say, okay, I'm done here. Yeah. Presenting all those different perspectives encourages them to appreciate the scene a little differently. Exactly. Sure. Before we go, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? So as you know, my thing is connecting people with nature and photography. Sometimes it's a challenge to get started on your own. And if you're looking for a way to connect with nature and photography, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at, at Ruth Hoyt Photo. Or you can look me up on my website, which is ruthhoyt.com, and I'll be glad to talk with you. I love connecting people. I'll make sure to include those two in our show notes. Wonderful. I'd like to thank Ruth for joining us today, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you are listening to this episode from. While you're there, please leave a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast. For pictures of some of the birds discussed here, including the green jay, please check out at Looking at Birds Podcast on Instagram. And until next time, keep looking at birds.